T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. DGB nominal, where the universe is a figment of its own imagination. All systems remain nominal, nominal, nominal. Hello everybody and welcome to this special episode of TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. Before we carry on with the proceedings, I'd like to apologise for the lack of content recently. This was due to unforeseen circumstances and that is why we are bringing you this special episode of the show. Why is this episode so special? Well, recently, I attended Wickham Comic Con 2016, along with Alan Taylor Shearer and his son Connor. Wickham Comic Con has expanded a lot since its debut in 2015, and one of the new features at the convention was a Star Wars Q&A panel, and we were asked to capture the proceedings for the podcast. The panel was hosted by Comic Con favourite Brian Wheeler, who starred in Return of the Jedi. So without further ado, let's get straight into the action. Gentlemen, I'll hand over to Brian Wheeler, the host of this Q&A session. Let's get a good Brian in here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Right, yeah, here we are. Yes, lovely. Yeah. Thank you very much. Right, yeah, welcome to the Star Wars question and answer session. And we've got all five of us, all from the Star Wars franchise. Uh, Jeremy can't be with us, unfortunately. He's making it, money. <laughs> he's a bit tied up, or so his wife says. <laughs> Think about that one. Is there children in the room? We will keep it children orientated then. Well, anyway, go along the line, we will start off and they will introduce themselves and the parts that they've played in the Star Wars franchise. Mr. Alan. Hi, I'm Alan Fling. I appeared in The Empire Strikes Back, principally as a stormtrooper in the Carbonite Chamber, but I also doubled up and played a snowtrooper, a Hoth rebel and a Hoth technician. And then Three years later, I turned up again, like the proverbial bad penny I am, in The Empire Strikes Back. Oh, no, I did that one. The Return of the Jedi. That's the one. Um, I was an Imperial officer aboard the Death Star, famously killed by myself as the Imperial officer on board the uh, Executor Bridge. He said, sir, we lost our bridge deflector shields just before my ship ploughed into me in the Death Star. <laughs> so I died twice in one scene. <laughs> Hi, I'm uh, Phoenix James. I play a first order stormtrooper in The Force Awakens. Was that it? I'm Brian Wheeler. I was an Ewok and a Jawa in Return of the Jedi. That was it, basically. Over to you. Okay, I'm Anthony Forrest. I was a sand trooper in The New Hope. I did the scene with Obi-Wan Kenobi. These aren't the droids we're looking for. Let me see your identification. Move along, move along. And I did Fixer, which is on the deleted scenes, which uh, are on the Blu-ray and the DVD. And Fixer is a friend of Luke Skywalker, so if you know the film at all, when Luke says he's going to go get the power converters, he was going to Toshi Station to see Fixer, who is kind of a loose cannon, and Uncle Owen didn't want him really to hang out with him or anything like that. Go. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Ken Colley and I play Admiral Peart in uh, Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. There you That's go. You Isn't know. that enough? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You know all about us now. Uh, we'll open the floor to any questions. If you put your hand up, it would make life easier. Or if you just throw something that would make it even funnier. <laughs> Thank you. 
Right, yeah, so any questions out there for, for any of the people and say who you want to ask a question to? Thank you. <laughs> Don't all shout at once. We got one. It's no, oh, no, no, we go for him first. I'll ask a question. Um, you mentioned deleted scenes. How does it feel when it's end up on the cutting room floor? I think that's just part of the process. Uh, some of the best stuff is on the cutting room, cutting room floor. No, it's it's films. That's the way. That's the process you work in. Film. I always feel that films are made three times. They're made on the script. When you're writing the script, that's one version of the film. When you're shooting a film, that's another version of the film that's going to happen. Then there's all this footage, etc. I mean, and then you end up in the editing stage, and that's the decisions that are made by the editors and the director and the producers to try and figure out exactly what is going to be the best piece of material that they're going to be able to give to the distributors. Also remembering you're trying to fit into a time slot. Distributors are, are, are business people who actually want to have five screenings a day as opposed to four, otherwise we'd all have three hour movies. So Star Wars originally, the original script on Star Wars was 142 pages long. So in technical terms, that would be 20, 22 minutes overtime in terms of a 120 page screenplay. So. I've always been very realistic because having worked in theater and things like that, you just kind of know and work on other films and that you realize, you know, this is a process you go through. So you keep, I was not disappointed. I was just happy that the sand trooper was in the film because I did it as a favor. I didn't really, I was hired as the fixer and then George said, can you do me a favor and play the sand trooper? And I got to work with Alec Guinness. I mean, that was like a great moment, so. You know, I'm, my kids still think I'm Jedi mind tricked. <laughs> I was also in a deleted scene in Jabba the Hutt's palace uh, where Mark Hamill gets dropped into the pit with the big animal. He was, he was apparently supposed to jump up and grab hold of the bars and me and my friend Andy Heard were supposed to run across the bars and smash his hands with, uh, with our guns. But unfortunately our, vis our vision was like that and we had to run across bars and every time one of us fell through the bar. Only one leg, think about that, men. <laughs> Only one leg went through that bar. And so every time it got cut. And I have actually got pictures of it, if you want to come and buy them, <laughs> at my table, <laughs> of the deleted scenes. But yeah, we've all, have we all done deleted scenes? We've got deleted? It, it, yeah, it's, it's the, when you've put, you feel you've put your best into a scene and the film comes out. Very early on, I learned very quickly don't tell people I'm going to be in this movie, I'm going to do this, do that. Because uh, sometimes it doesn't, just doesn't happen. The scene yeah. doesn't work for the film, as you're saying. Yeah. Or, or time-wise, you know, they have to cut down. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's not a great feeling when you put all your time and energy into a scene and you feel it's, you know, you're looking forward to it, seeing it come out and stuff. But it happens and just the way it goes, just deal with it. Hello, many deleted scenes? Not so much deleted scenes, but I mean, I, I did so many different shots for the second unit. There's a, in a rough assembly, it turned out that I was actually chasing myself down a corridor. <laughs> I had to point out to George that you couldn't yeah. have like twins chasing each other, <laughs> one on either side of the divide. Yeah. So he reluctantly had to recut it yet again, but he shot so much. Yeah. He could have done two films just out of the second unit chasing scenes. On a, on a deleted scene note, there are sometimes you wish the scenes were deleted. That's <laughs> true <laughs> scum. I wish I'd been deleted from scum. I, I ended up supposed to be given in, in, uh, in the shower scene with, um, oh, what's his name? I can't remember now. Ray Winston. Ray Winston, yes. His first job out of drama school. God, was he nervous. We were supposed to be in the borstal in, in the shower scene. And um, it was supposed to be faces. But they said, we're going to have to strip down because we'll see your backs. 
No, they saw every inch of us because they pulled the camera back and did a wide shot. <laughs> and Ray would not turn away from the shower. <laughs> so unfortunately, I had to be displayed in all my glory, and I do wish they'd cut that. <laughs> Still there if you're curious. <laughs> Were you doing the deleted scenes? I don't believe anything I did was. <laughs> There's the best but, answer. I mean, the deleted scenes, you know, it can mar a career or can stop it being born. I had a friend who was fresh out of drama school, and the biggest film of the year that year was starring Ava Gardner, then one of the four biggest names in the movies. And he was to play her lover, and he shot the scenes, etc. Well, when you've shot a movie, there's a cast and crew screening before it's released to the public, and everybody was on the movie and the crew and everything. Sit and watch this movie. Well, they managed to delete him so that all that was left of his part was a reaction shot at a party in her apartment. That was it. And he sat through the movie waiting for himself to come on and never did. <laughs> and of course, nobody, when the lights went up, talked to him or mentioned a thing because they all knew what he was feeling. And he never got a break again. In a way, it served him because he became a brilliant writer and won an Oscar for a screenplay. But he gave up acting. I'm never gonna go through that experience again as long as I live, sitting in shame knowing what everybody there was thinking. Mm -hmm. But he became a writer instead and um, probably had greater success at that than he would have done as an actor. So it can work both ways. Yeah, that was interesting. Yeah. Mm. Uh, next question. Ah, Jack, where are My daughter, Olivia, question for Phoenix. Uh, what was your favourite scene to, to film? Um, but I'd, I'd like to widen that out to, to everybody. Okay. Great. Um, in, in Star Wars? In, yeah, in The Force Awakens, yeah. Um, all of the scenes uh, entering Jakku, the village, uh, that, that was like the most, it was just high intensity and action and everything was, there's a lot of live stuff as well, like all the fires you see and everything was real and stuff, so it was just, that was like for me, like, like massive. And it was the beginning of the film as well, so it was, it was great. We knew that as well when we were doing it, we knew that it was going to be the start of the film, so it was pretty high energy and then exciting and there's lots going on at the same time, you know, it's just, that was for me the, the, the best, for me, of, you know, the role. Go along. Well, um, the appearance I had in um, Return of the Jedi, because I wasn't cast for it. Um, I've said it many times, it's been recorded on the web, you can see it anywhere on, on uh, YouTube. I turned into the studio that day, in actual fact, to sign my contract for my next picture. And it was on my way out, having signed my contract, that I got a, uh, this wave to come over from a desperate um, AD. He said, can you do us a favor? I knew the AD from previous films and from Empire. And I said, sure, I'll do you a favor, as long as I can be away, because I've got to drive to Wales tonight to start a new picture. So we will going to take a minute. So in I went, and this poor actor had been working all morning trying to get this one line out. It just, just didn't work. Ken will know all about that, because he was up on top. 
in the end, I ended up taking over from the other actor and I delivered my line to Ken. And Ken was on the film the next day in Wales, Gyro City. Oh, yeah. With Glenda. Yeah. <laughs> and that was weird. I wasn't even supposed to be there. <laughs> <laughs> so I did the favour in a soaking wet, sweaty costume, ran to the bank with a cheque, got a hasty clearance, I said, in case they'd ch change their minds. <laughs> Went home, got in the car, and drove to Wales, and the next morning, there he was, the man I'd just delivered my line to. Fantastic. <laughs> I suppose mine was uh, mostly uh, the Jawa uh, scenes, because there were just uh, two or three of us, uh, small people on the set, and we just had fun with it, and there were so many different characters and all these people in extremely weird costumes and, uh, and working towards Jabba the Heart, which was three people in there. So, yeah, that was about mine, I think. Passing on. Okay. Um, well, in a way, Fixer was, was what I was cast as, so that was kind of uh, my favorite, but it wasn't used. But then again, I had a girlfriend. I had Koo Stark, who had been Prince Andrew's girlfriend. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you, anybody knows that history of that. But it was really just the opportunity to, to play the scene with Alec Guinness. That was something that I didn't know was going to happen. I didn't have any idea. And it was George Lucas asking me to do him a favor. And so it was kind of one of those things where um, to be able to just walk into a scene and actually just go in cold like that. And as I was walking, the, George Lucas handed me his screenplay. And I'm looking at the screenplay to read the scene. And they're dressing me as we're walking in to do that because I don't know what had happened previously. I wasn't aware of why they dragged me from the hotel out to the set to actually do it. But so that was kind of, and that also has become such an iconic scene in all the wonderful people who have actually copied it in all their television programs and Family Guy and The Simpsons and things like that. So it's quite, in terms of your career, that's kind of unusual to have that happen. So. Okay. Well, <laughs> you know, a friend of mine saw the movie and he said, oh, Ken, I, I saw the movie, I thought it was so good the way you were frightened of Darth Vader. And I said, I wasn't scared of Darth Vader, I was scared of the dialogue. But <clears throat> because on the movies, what you cannot hide is important as what you intend to play, it worked. Because on my first day, I had a scene with David in which I cannot remember this word. I can remember the others. I had said, my Lord, our, and then there was a word this long. I don't know what it was. <laughs> our discombobulated up and fifth gear thing has discovered the Millennium Falcon in the fifth planet of the Hoth system. <laughs> and I did 11 takes of that because they could never quite time this little mouse which was aiming for my feet as I was walking up to Darth. And I thought, please God, let this day not go on much. <laughs> I cannot, I don't know if I'm fifthing or hothing, I don't know if I'm fifthing. <laughs> well, there's a wonderful director, a wonderful American director on that. And on take 12, he said, Canning, Canning, listen, sat my lord with my lord, um, the disc, my lord, we've got him, say that. And my joy began. <laughs> so I did six more takes saying, my lord, we've found them. That was it. That was my favorite scene. Because <laughs> I lost half of the dialogue. Next question. <clears throat> have we got, are we over there yet? Have we got that one? Yep. Yeah. Um, how did you feel when you first got the call to be on Star Wars, especially for Phoenix, who 
of us obviously seen the first floor, but like for Alan, Anthony, you know, especially with like New Hope now starting out. Uh, should we start at the other end? Okay. Yes, yes. Yeah, okay. Um, well, you have to understand that there was no history of Star Wars when when I began, and it was just a silly space film nobody was going to see. Hmm. So, and, and beginning this way with this scene, I thought, my God, I just want to go home and lie down. <laughs> nobody, nobody knew that the entire world of cinema was about to change, and that. We were doing something that's not only the most successful or one of the most successful franchise, but actually became part of the history of the 20th century. Wider, much wider than films. For instance, I was at the airport waiting to get a plane and uh, somebody had left a newspaper on the front, on the table in front of me, a daily paper. And it was open at the political cartoon of the day. And this cartoon was Queen Elizabeth II knighting somebody with a lightsaber. <laughs> <laughs> and people in Parliament shouted Darth Vader at each other across the political divide. So it was all a great shock. And wonderful now, but at the time, we didn't, we didn't think of that. No, no, no. It was just a job, a movie that nobody understood. You know, they say, what, what, what is this word? What do you think this word is in the script? And they say, oh, I think it's a typing error. <laughs> he made up this, this scientific gobbledygook. It's only now when we're, we're reaping the rewards now because it's had such an effect on all our lives. Yeah. yeah. I yeah, I think yeah. The the impact is quite extraordinary in terms of when you actually realize how it spread. You were now potentially seeing for for me, I'm potentially meeting four generations of fans. That's unheard of in cinema, really. It's kind of like if we were playing for Manchester United, and and so that's that's without a, the money. Without the money, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so it's 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 very unusual to have that happen. But but the, getting back to your question is is I had met George Lucas a couple of times. I'd been, my agent had had me go in to meet him. And so I had no real idea what he was thinking. So when it actually came through, um, the management said, uh, they'd like to hire you to play Fixer. I said, who the hell's Fixer? Because I, didn't, I wasn't really aware. But they said, you're going to Tunisia. And I said, I'm on board. <laughs> I, just, I, just, I just wanted a holiday. I was poking myself into a holiday. <laughs> Well, I was um, a graphic designer, and then I saw that someone gave me a newspaper article uh, that wanted actors under four foot six. And I thought, well, I'm not an actor, but I'm under four foot six, 50% there. <laughs> and I'd seen all the Star Wars before, films before, and I hadn't got a clue. And I just rung up this studio or this agency, and they said, you're really under four foot six? I said, yeah, yeah, sure. They said, go to this studio and you can go for a casting, of, as in a body casting. And they started casting, putting plaster all over my body and everything. And I said to them, by the way, what's this job for? And they said, uh, oh, it's a, a third film of a franchise. Oh, really? What's it? What's it? Star Wars. What? <laughs> <laughs> OK, I'm here. We'll do it. And I did two weeks on it as an Ewok. And then I got asked to do two more weeks as a Jawa in Jabba the Hutt's Palace. And that was just absolutely wonderful. And from then on, I've just carried on in the end. 
sorry, carried on on the entertainment <laughs> business of doing all sorts of stuff and obviously leading on to one of the bigger ones is Harry Potter at the moment. So uh, pass you on. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Forgot the question, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> What's it like being part of the Star Wars franchise? Um, fantastic. What um, did you think? Uh, amazing. It was. Uh, it was kind of surreal because I, I, I was I, I was born uh, three months after the first uh, movie was released in 1977. Um, so it was. Um, it was just yeah. I grew up with it, you know, to that you know to a degree. So it was. Then to get the opportunity, then to to be know that I was going to be a part of it was was quite exciting because uh, I had to go through. It was a process. It was a process of being asked if, about being considered for it. And because the thing is, it wasn't getting to be in it. It was it was a process of being considered to audition. So that's a that's a process long before even like being in it. It was a it, you know we had we had like a three day boot camp and stuff. We had this ex military guy training us, and it was this whole. It, for, it was like a series of jumping through hoops, if you like. Um, so by the time I got there, it was like, you know, you felt like you'd earned it, you know. And um, it was just an amazing experience, and it basically it always was, will be because of what Star Wars is and has been for the, for the, for the universe, for the world, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so it's, I can, it's just it's amazing. And at the time, I, didn't, I, didn't, I wasn't aware of um, how conventions and stuff worked. Um, Star Wars kind of introduced me to that world of conventions. So... It's opened up a whole world that I'd never even envisioned, and that's that's been uh, that's been amazing as well. It's just been a whole amazing experience. Well, I came to uh, into Empire Strikes Back as a reluctant um, casting because I I was already working on two other films, and in both of those other films I had decent parts with decent dialogue, but they wanted somebody who was unlike a lot of the other stormtroopers they already had, someone who was extremely well built. Well, in those days, I was extremely well built. I was a 48 chest and a 32 inch waist, and six foot tall. So obviously the costumes they'd made all to one size wouldn't fit me. But nevertheless, they insisted I had to wear it. So I got into it. And uh, the proviso that I, for me to doing the film was that my head was covered because <laughs> this is, this was 1979, remember? So I was appearing in these two films in continuity with long sideburns, a mullet, and a drooping moustache, all my own. And so I couldn't have any of it cut. Therefore, the, the helmet seemed to be a good thing. And the casting was for two days' work. So then I got on to doing seven, seven and a half weeks' work and came out at the end of it and then had to go back to these other films who were really teed off with me because they'd already stopped shooting. They got all their footage, so they had to then pull together short units for me to complete my, my scenes, to be cut in. So I, I wasn't that impressed, to be honest, because the scenes that I was doing on the car blower chamber were hellishly hot. Um, some of the hottest scenes to shoot ever. When you were bad enough being in the desert in armor, mm. but in the uh, carbonite chamber, the stage was put um, in lockdown before we even arrived, so that uh, by the time we were dressed and ready to go on, the door was open for the shortest possible period because the cameras had been set up and left up overnight, waiting for the temperature to rise 
and rise and rise until it reached around about 140 degrees, which is impossibly hot. Mm. But the problem was they were venting live steam beneath our feet. And the steam had to raise the temperature to a certain level before the camera would unfog because of all the condensation. So we had uh, arc lights. We didn't have the nice cool lights that they have now. We had arc lights that we were shooting under with steam venting up from under our feet into our costumes with rubber grommeted neck bands right up to our chins and then the helmets on top which didn't fit. And uh, we stood there for 12 hours a day, <laughs> six days a week for seven weeks to get that lovely scene. And um, every day I would come off the set and uh, we would all undress in pure exhaustion. Oh, by the way, we had to access the set, the actual stage set, by ladder, because it was six meters off the ground. Yeah, so we had to go up in all the armor, including the helmets, up a ladder, and then come off in, you know, down a ladder, go and get undressed, by which time we'd take everything off, which was, <laughs> He was cutting us and uh, snapping and sticking into us and God knows what else. But the boots, the elastic-sided ankle boots, we would take them off and literally empty out the sweat. They just dripped away. They never needed to go to the toilet. <laughs> we sweated so much during the day, we never needed to go to the toilet. <laughs> you have to ring out your balaclava, is it? No, I didn't ring out the balaclava. I, I took off my balaclava and um, just wore it on top of my head for the helmet to sit on. <laughs> because uh, the eyes were in the wrong place. And then some brilliant person, in fact it was camera operator, operator, complained that he could see lots and lots of reflections in the lenses. Mm. So a brilliant, brilliant wardrobe guy. During one of the breaks, down off the set, sitting to the side on forms, took all our helmets away and brought them back, very proudly announcing that he'd solved the reflection problem and he'd taken Brasso to the lenses, which was great the camera operator was absolutely ecstatic <laughs> but we couldn't see anything <laughs> completely completely gone so it was no wonder in subsequent scenes of shooting that people used to run into stanchions <laughs> on and dave was one of those who did that all the time too <laughs> yeah wow. so you asking out again oh no. lady in the purple sorry uh, next lady in the purple at the back Hi. apart from your own character What's your favourite character in the film, and why? That's a good one. Uh -huh. Shall we go again, Star Wars? <laughs> yeah. I think Yoda, because the way he was presented, you were led to believe that when you landed on this planet, there was going to be this great being, and of course your imagination filled that with size. And then this little puppet came up with this wisdom. And I thought it was such a delightful thing to do, to switch around. That was my favorite. <clears throat> Next, uh, Obi-Wan. I think mainly because one of the things that's interesting about Star Wars is it is steeped in mythology. George Lucas was very involved, or not involved, but he was very interested in the philosophies of the Far East. He was interested in the philosophies of Joseph Campbell. And so that is very much uh, comes across when you look at it, uh, it Obi-Wan's character. 
in his in what what he's portraying in terms of the force and that that energy, and and so what is interesting is within Star Wars, I think it was steeped in mythology in its storytelling, and it's become mythology in its own way, and so that's quite unusual for to for that to happen. So yeah, I think Obi Wan. Yeah. I think mine on the lighter moment is uh, Harrison Ford in Han Solo because he's just all action hero and he's got some great one liners and he's very sarcastic and hmm, a bit like me. <laughs> <laughs> Buzz in your eye. Uh, Yoda, Yoda as well, yeah. I'm afraid I go against the grain and I've shocked audiences before who asked me similar questions. I like Jar Jar Binks. Yes. I think he just, he just, <laughs> he just was a, a square peg. He just did not fit into that round hole, and I just adored watching him, getting everything wrong but everything right in the end. It was just wonderful, and it was cemented by uh, me going to Dallas for a signing once, and the best costume that came up to my table was a guy who calls himself um, Chef Vader. And it's a Darth Vader with Chef Whites on. <laughs> and in his arms is a salver with Jar Jar Binks's head on it. <laughs> I've got to throw that one out. Who put your hands up if you like Jar Jar Binks? Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, oh, yeah. Put your hands up if you don't like Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> and put your hands up if you don't really care. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Right, yeah, what, I don't know. What, what's a worse character? Should we just throw that one out? What, what character do you not like, particularly in the, uh, the Star Wars franchise? Hello, yeah. so are you. Oh, dear. Yeah, no, I thought I'd just one. chuck that one out. I'm, I'm allowed a question. Uh, I'm in charge. I, I, <laughs> I don't know what it was called, but. Um, Ewok. No, in Jumpers. <laughs> Salacious Crumb. Oh, God. <laughs> Salacious yeah, Crumb. Yeah, Jabba the Hutt's Palace. Yeah. Yeah, and a nice little uh, Muppet. Yes, exactly. <laughs> More ways than one. Yeah, very much so. Stop filming, you. You haven't asked their permission. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone that was a late, we had to ask permission if you're taking pictures. You may be watching this. <laughs> <laughs> He's really doing a selfie, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Here I am. I don't, I don't have any. Uh, I don't have any. No. No. Um, it's, it's, uh, no. I don't. No. no. You like everybody. Yeah. But you, I think you're that sort of guy, though, aren't you? I, I am. You, you like yeah. all these people, don't you? I love you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know actually why I threw that question out because I hadn't even thought of my answer. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, no, I actually think Judge Jar Binks. Uh, and the, and the th I don't know what it was, the, the underwater thing um, in the, the, I don't know, in the first... The Phantom the, Menace. Yeah, in Phantom Menace, yeah. Uh, that, that thing, I, don't, I didn't get that one, but a lot in the Phantom Menace I didn't get anyway. Uh, that wasn't a very good answer, I'm sorry, but yeah. that's, that's life. Yeah, really. <laughs> uh, 3PL, the dialogue. <laughs> was, the, the dialogue was just killing. It was all the fussing and the. <laughs> I thought it was so unnecessary. Uh, yeah. 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 It was based on someone, wasn't he? It yeah. was based on a comedy character. Yeah. Lauren Hardy. Sorry? I thought it was Lauren Hardy, but I could be wrong. Oh, no. The, the, him and the little fellow are based upon 
Professor Higgins and Elijah Dugan. Oh, right. oh, okay. oh, those are the role models. Oh, really? For those, yeah. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. That's, that's an yeah. interesting one. Yeah. yeah. He wanted a Rex Harrison type British actor with authority and language. Right. And some little nubbit. Right, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll the, tell Kenny that. I think Jabba the Hutt was the But then I happened to be there when they were rehearsing him. Uh, you know, originally he was going to be a man, a friend of mine actually, just a man, a man-sized. And then part way through they decided, no, he's got to be gigantic. So my friend ended up being inside him because, do you remember when he ate the toad? Yeah. Well, they got from Central Africa a dozen of the biggest toads on the planet. And I'm telling you, they were the size of rabbits. You couldn't hold one in your hand. You'd have to do that. And this particular friend of mine happened to hate reptiles. And his job was to be inside Jabba, receiving the toad when Jabba's hand put it in his mouth. <laughs> So you can imagine when they were, they were practicing Jabba's smile, two men behind with nine on lines, to show the pleasure Jabba took when the toad went down. But what I heard coming out, I couldn't print or say in front of children <laughs> about the toads. <laughs> because what he had to do was receive it and immediately put it into a big container of water. Because if they tried, they died. And as anyone tell you that, the, the heat under those lights yeah. Yeah. was well over 100 some days. Yeah. Mm. And so they had to worry about these things. Mm. And uh, I thought, I think, I think Java. And in the course of uh, doing it, one kind of slipped and went awry and it cleared half the studio. <laughs> there were chippies and there were electrics <laughs> all working around us, banging away and sawing away. And this bloody great, they were this big. Just, going in the studio, it cleared him. So I think, because he enjoyed eating them, I think Shabba is my belly. I do, so throwing it back out there. Any more questions of yeah. what you want to ask? Oh, sorry, the young lady at the final. Um, what was it like working with like, George Lucas and Harrison Ford? Because obviously Harrison Ford already had quite a big name for himself, like Indiana Jones and stuff. So what was it like working with those two big names? Um. George was a very quiet man, very quiet indeed, and sometimes he was very, he was very reticent sometimes to say anything. When you desperately wanted to get a bit of direction, you just couldn't get it. Because uh, I remember a lot of guys who have played Stormtroopers from the original trilogy will tell you, um, when we were forced into second unit work with George, we feared it. Because George uh, is a... He has a vision in his mind, but he has a problem explaining it. So he would have us literally run 30 meters down a slippery corridor and turn around and run back towards the camera 30 odd times in this armor. <laughs> then having done all that, he'd have us chasing across the end of the corridor, left and right, left and right, shouting ping, ping, ping for when we were shooting. So they could use that to actually put the effects in. The problem was we'd run 30 times and he'd said, go again. And you say, okay, so we all go checking back to the beginning. Action, start running, get to the end, cut, go again. And you hear this very, very quiet voice 
And we did this for days and days on end in between shots on the carbonite chamber set. And I remember we actually ended up by the camera at one point. And I've never been reticent <coughs> in expressing my opinion. <laughs> um, and even to him, we got to the end and he said, go again. I said, Mr. Lucas, he said, yep. He said, could you tell us what we're actually doing wrong so that we could do it right? He just looked at him and said, go again. <laughs> <laughs> and then we did this, one particular one, which was over 30 takes, and we got to the end of it. And he turned to the also continuity woman who was keeping all the shot lists. And he said, print number two. <laughs> no way to expect explanation. Didn't know what we'd done right or what we'd done wrong. We do exactly the same every single time. But print number two. So he was actually quite difficult sometimes to work with. Harrison was quite reserved with most of us. Amongst the main cast, he was fine, because they were all in it together, whereas we were not really on the same earth as him. Um, and I remember on a lot of scenes, they actually constructed a shed um, in the corner of the set. It wasn't even a little caravan that they sometimes bring in, or a little zip-up room that they use. It was a shed, a garden shed, with a chair in it. And he would retreat there between <coughs> takes. The rest of the cast didn't. They were fine, absolutely fine. And we chat away between us, all of us. We were all on the same job. But Harrison would just disappear into his shed. I don't think it's the first time that sort of experience has been found with lots of stars. Lots of the Americans used to have little private little dressing rooms on the, on the stage. And I think he just liked the privacy, basically. You got to? No, you don't want to say anything. Well. No, I, 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 uh, I didn't uh, get to meet Harrison or George. Oh, George. Yeah. All right, so shall we move on? <laughs> yeah. Well, I never really met George actually. Either. I was with the uh, assistant director most of the time. But a funny story about Harrison Ford is that when he's hanging upside down in the Ewok village uh, on the spit, uh, he then speaks to C-3PO at one point, and he suddenly moves his head rather sharpishly, and nothing to do with what was going on other than that I'd hit him in the head with a lump of wood. <laughs> because as an Ewok, you could see nothing, and I just had to pass wood like that to that to that, and one time I hit his head. So he goes, <laughs> and carries on. Yeah. So that's what... Uh, but as Alan said, he would always seemed very private. I, saw, I got a photo of him, which you can buy. And I put, <laughs> <laughs> but I got a photo of him. But other than that, I only saw him walking from one place to another or on set. I very rarely saw him. Mark Hamill was there all the time and Carrie yes. Fisher all the time. Yes. Um, Hampson Ford, in his garden shed. <laughs> Uh, I, I didn't get a chance to work with Harrison Ford, um, and I haven't done over the years, but I uh, did get a chance to work with George. And he's, he is shy. He's very quiet. He's not a, um, he, you know, some directors are loud and, and, and they bark orders. Um, and, you know, they f you feel, oh, these have complete control of, of, of what they're doing in that. Um, and I actually, maybe because I was just young and, and being bold, I. I would go and talk to George. I said, how do you like directing? I actually asked him a question. I said, how do you like directing? And he, he looked at me and he said, I don't. He said, I like to write. And I think that's very much his personality. He's much more the writer than he is the director. And he's very fastidious about the, the, what he wants 
he has a vision. And I must admit, he, he had to fight very hard to get that vision across because nobody else could see the vision because he does not explain an awful lot. He kind of keeps everything to himself. Um, but he, he, in, his, in his mind's vision, he knows what he wants. And so when he, I had the, the Sand Trooper costume on, he was very particular and he didn't wait for the props department or, or anybody else to come along and, and do it or tell them to do it. He actually got, he got down in the dirt with it himself with his hands and put more dirt on me because he wanted to look that much more dirty. So he, was visual, he visualizes everything in, in his, his mind's eye. Um, not a great share of that information, but he, he is really the one who was pretty particular about what he wanted to try and achieve, and nobody else. Again, especially from the special effects department, nobody had, you could read the script, and, and in those days you wonder how in the hell are they going to do this? Because everything before that was pretty much, except for 2001 Space Odyssey, was pretty much science fiction. It was paper plates on strings. Mm. And, you know, it wasn't... You know, and so Star Wars really broke that mold. And just to give another kind of put everything in perspective, George Lucas, one of the reasons he was interested, Elstree was, I, maybe he chose that studio, was because that's where Kubrick made 2001 Space Odyssey. Mm -hmm. And that's also a lot of the crew he wanted to work on Star Wars. He wanted to try and get as many people who had worked on 2001 to work on Star Wars. And I had a meeting with, with um, uh, the director of uh, Superman, because that was being made at the same time, and also Close Encounters was being made at the same time. And he said, um, George Lucas had called him. He said, I have a Star Wars story for you. He said, George Lucas had called him, because they all knew each other, these directors in Hollywood at that time. There was probably about a dozen of them who, who were in communication and shared information. And he said, um, which, uh, you've got the cinematographer I want, because he had got, um, the cinematographer from uh, 2001 to work on Superman. And so he said, who could you recommend? And he had just finished doing The Omen, and Gil Taylor was a cinematographer. So that's how Gil Taylor ended up being the cinematographer on Star Wars, because it was through a recommendation. And I remember speaking to Gil Taylor, and Gil Taylor said, I don't know what I'm doing here, because I'm actually, I've retired, and I'm a dairy farmer in Kent now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, that was working with George. Have you to Ken? I, no, I didn't work with any of the American actors. I was confined to the Death Star, but um, <laughs> I didn't meet George either, but I, I did Empire, and uh, that was that. I finished it, and then he, he rang up and said, do you want to be in the next Star Wars movie? And I thought, did Dolly Parton sleep on her back? <laughs> because um, when it was released, there'd been a big reaction from the fans about this character, and they wanted to know more about him. So he said, I've no idea what you're going to do, because you're not in the script. But come to the studio, and I'll write for you. And so I turned up at Elstree, and we sat on the set while they were rehearsing Jabba the Hutt. And he wrote a scene and said, there you are, Kenny, another one next week, but I've no idea what it's going to be. Those are the only words he ever said, except he, he gave me the history of Star Wars whilst he was writing. When he and his partner, Gary Kurtz, were at film school together, and it was going to be 12, like this Icelandic saga style, 12, all connected to each other, and this fight for the money, 
and how Fox said, you've just got to send out what you've got. You're not going to get another cent. You've had all the money, and uh, nobody's going to see this movie. There's nobody in it anybody knows. And as a consequence of that, the deal that George got was this. 20th Century Fox would take 10 cents on the dollar. He would get 90 and the merchandising, because before Star Wars, there was no merchandising with movies. No, not at all. And it took something like a billion. So I think in Hollywood, in some offices, I think somebody heard the sound of a shot <laughs> from coming from different offices as producers just <laughs> blew their brains out for giving him that contract. Also, he was not, George, was not a, he was not a Hollywood type. He was from San Francisco, he was, was, and, and, so, and that's where Francis Ford, Ford Coppola was, and that's where Zoetrope was. And so that, he, you know, that, there's that, that kind of um, thing that, you know, we don't want to do everything the Hollywood way. We want, we want to create really interesting films and, and be a cre completely original. And as you know, Hollywood likes to copy things and just redo them and redo them. Franchises. Franchises. And that, it only just wants to make money. And, and so that was why, I think, for years, Lucasfilm has never moved to, to Los Angeles. It's always been up in San Francisco. But there is a side thing to this, that Star Wars was inspired by a British film. You know, at the end of World War II, this country was in a hell of a state. Everything was gray. Food was rationed. There were just smashed buildings and piles of rubble across main bus routes. And everybody was in a terrible depression because the country was broke. And a Hungarian producer who'd come over to escape the Nazis and started a film industry of his own here called Alexander Corder went to the government and he said, I want to make a movie. And I want to make a movie like nobody's ever made before. And I want to make it in this new form, Technicolor. Because up to then, films were black and white. But he said, no single producer can afford this film. And he went to the Board of Trade. And in the name of joying up the country, bringing something to people of color, the government agreed to back this movie against loss. And it was called The Thief of Baghdad. And it starred a young Indian Mahout who'd been discovered on the back of an elephant by a man looking for a previous film to that about elephants in India, who said that boy is a natural star, and brought him here and built the film around him. And it was the most phenomenal British film ever made. It made huge money in America, which no British film ever had. And over in New Jersey, a boy of 10 years old went to see this film. And he came out at the end of it saying, that's the greatest movie of its kind I have ever seen. And one day, I'm going to do that. And the boy's name was George Lucas. Mm -hmm. well, I, 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 I ran that film about a year ago. And it still stands up. It's wonderful. You ever get a chance? It's now on. You can get it on DVD. Like the Thief of Baghdad. Yeah. I have to get going soon. Right, yeah. Well, we're going to have to yeah. start wrapping up now. I think. Uh, have we got any last questions? That anyone wants to ask? 
one more? Speak no, now or for no, the whole yeah, okay. No more. I think okay, then if you good. could give the panel a big round of applause. Yeah. Well. I just like to say, I think that one of the, the everybody, ha I think we all realize that one of the, the main reasons Star Wars has been so successful this year is because of you guys, yeah. because of the fans. Yeah. It's the fans that supported Star Wars, and I think in the end of the day, we can actually say it's the fans own Star Wars. So I think we should give them a big round of applause. Thank yeah. And we'll see you all back over there. Hope you've enjoyed yeah. it. Thank, Thank you. you. Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spanheadproductions.com. Weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. I hope you enjoyed the audio from the Q&A panel. We always love attending Wickham Comic Con and we'll be bringing you more content from the event in the near future. So watch this space. If you're wondering where John is, don't worry. He'll be docking with TGP Nominal before the next episode. So that only leaves me to say thanks for listening and we look forward to talking to you all again real soon. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. Be sure to visit tgpnominal.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode. Just look for the relevant tab on the menu. Let us know what you think of the show. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com because your input is our output. Or you can use the social media icons at the top of the page that include Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. Don't forget to rate and review us. You can find links on all our podcast pages. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. This is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event.